Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guests are Patricia Marks and Roz Chast, who have a book together called Why Don't You Write My Eulogy Now So I Can Correct It, A Mother's Suggestion. Both of them write for The New Yorker, though Roz actually draws for The New Yorker, and she's got several books under her belt. Both of them have books together, children's books together. Patricia Marks was the first woman on the Harvard Lampoon, wrote one year for Saturday Night Live. You've been very busy as a writer. Most of your work lately seems to be with The New Yorker writing humor pieces. Is that humor pieces and longer pieces. I'm shallow, so most things tend to be, if not funny, at least I'm trying to make them funny. I assume that you guys had met at The New Yorker, but you two have known each other far longer than that. How did Roz Chast and Patricia Marks meet? We met in the 15th century, and when we were both in our 20s, I published a humor piece called How to Get Along with the Russians in the Atlantic magazine. And oddly enough, it's still pertinent. And Roz illustrated it. Roz was starting out in her career. I was too. And the illustration was wonderful. And my mother said, that's a great illustration. You should call up the illustrator and introduce yourself. I think you would like each other. And it was as if you were kind of six and your mother pushed you on to the playground and said, she's six, you're six, go play. Was that before or after Saturday Night Live? That was after. And Roz? It was really pretty much that we were about 23, 24 and our mothers, Patty's mother set us up on a play date. Patty did call, and we did become friends, and uh, I wound up illustrating a children's book called Now Everybody Really Hates Me that Patty had co-written with Jane Martin. Wonderful, wonderful children's book about a little girl who is sent to her room, and she says, you know what? This is fine. I'm just going to stay in my room forever. Oh, and no, oh. for the rest of her life, unless the there's something yeah. good to eat that night. Yes, in which yes. case, I'll go back after and stay stay there for the rest of her life. And that yeah. was the beginning of yeah. many collaborations and a great friendship. Now, were you living in New York at the time? I was. I was living in Manhattan, and you were living in Brooklyn then. When we no, met? I think we were, I was living in Manhattan by then. I I was living in Brooklyn for a few months after college okay. uh, at my parents, and then I moved to Manhattan. This one clearly is Patricia Marks writing stuff, saying, okay, do whatever you want. That's what it seems like to me. It was more collaborative. It was more sort of a, a mushy project. It, it's about my mother and the things my mother said. We like to think, of course, it's universal, and it's about half of the mothers who are my mother and half who are most decidedly not. And I gave Roz the rough draft, 
And then she suggested changes in that, and then she drew stuff, and I suggested some additions to that, and we never disagreed. Yeah. No. I, I think that, you know, this is one of the fun things about collaborating with Patty is that there is a lot of back and forth between us and, you know, she can comment on the drawings and I can comment on the writing and it's really very much of a joint project and that's what the children's books have been like as well. Um, as opposed to like somebody just like here's the finished thing and you do the illustrations and that's the end. But the the original idea for the book, um, I remember Patty had been quoting things from her mother for a while and I think it was the drum majorette one. If you wear red and black together, don't wear red and black together or you'll look like a drum majorette. And this picture popped into my head that was so clear and I just thought, oh, it'd be so much fun to draw that. And I said to Patty, you know, if you could get, you know, like 50 of these or something together, and I had heard so many over the years, you know, I think this could be a book. Incidentally, I'm wearing red and black now. There are no bands following us. Uh, It's the perfect kind of a collaboration because we do each have our own jobs. I'm writing it and Roz is illustrating it, but the jobs overlap a lot. I've worked doing TV and movie scripts, and that's more of a kind of a redundancy. Were you doing the captions in Roz's illustrations too, or those Roz's in the balloons? I think I would oh. also always say suggested illustration, and sometimes Roz used them, and often she didn't. And some of them, there were no suggestions. Yeah, most of just, them there weren't. Yeah. Because I know that, Roz, your work, when you do it by yourself, yeah. is kind of like, oh, I think this is funny. I'm just going to see if it's funny, and then you just yeah. start writing, writing it, right? That's what most of this was like. Like, there was one, if you run out of food at a dinner party, the world will end. And when I read that, I pictured it as two aliens in a spaceship kind of seeing like Earth blow up. And then the two aliens are talking to each other about like what might have caused it. And it was that, you know, so-and-so ran out of brisket. And, you know, obviously. And, you know, that was the It's one of the great illustrations in the book. I mean, Roz's illustrations, as you know, are just hilarious. (laughs) They're unique. I mean, you see a Roz Chast illustration in... The New Yorker, you know immediately, oh, it's a Raj Chast mm-hmm. illustration. You can't, nobody else does them quite like that. But the, in this book and, and in general with Raj's illustrations, they're never just illustrating the text. They're always adding something else or they could stand alone. Exactly. That's why I asked the question about what's in the balloons because yeah, that's mm-hmm. my mind. But I think yeah. that's that's partly what makes these collaborations kind of fun, that they're not just, you know, like a cut and dried job where Johnny is crossing the street and then, you know, you draw Johnny crossing the street. You know, I couldn't do that. I would have to be like Johnny like wants to cross the street, but then, you know, he's thinking of reasons why maybe he'd rather go, you know, just go back home or whatever it is. But we pretty much have the same sense of humor. So it comes from the same sensibility. Yeah. So you you know damn well that when you say, what about this? And the other person laughs, you know, you're onto something. Yeah. 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 I mean, we also, one of the other reasons the collaboration works is if I suggest something to Roz or vice versa that we don't think is great, we don't have a problem 
when the other person says, I don't think so. How many illustrations were there that just didn't make it in the book because both of you went, mm, no? I don't think any illustrations. There were a few that were that just seemed too. Uh, I mean, there were ideas, items. items oh, yeah. Well, when I came up with the items or the you know the the mm. captions, we had too many. So we sat down with our editor and we went over each one right. and eliminated some. But by the time it got to that point that right. we had the the final text, all of your illustrations. Made. Right, right. Is there something where you kind of going? This is almost too on the nose, where it's almost. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's part of the. Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes it's frustrating. With with all of this stuff is like the drum majorette one was like Bing. You know, you can I can see the picture and I'm just drawing it. But then there's ones where you know you go in this direction. You say no, it's too on the nose, or this one's too obscure, or whatever, and you've got to kind of you know mess with it. But that's you know what I do. It's it's well, well, trying to figure it out. You know. Well, well, Roz, it's it's also true that you know there's that line for your stuff where some people are going to just roll on the floor and others are going to scratch their head and go, I don't get it at all. But that's yeah. kind of what you do. Yeah, I'll, I think all cartoonists. You're not trying to please everybody. Basically, you're trying to make yourself laugh. I'm I'm just often I'm still amazed and and grateful that anybody thinks that what I think is funny is also funny. You know, because I don't know what's inside other people's heads. You know, I barely know what's inside of mine. It's like, oh, there's a protein bar from like 1988. It's you know that's old candy wrappers. A book like this, obviously, or maybe not so obviously, is not going to have political content, but we're living in a time where political content seems to run over everything. At any point, were were either of you women considering this? You know, I had an item that was something about my mother saying, you know, it was so extremely, if you don't vote the way I vote, you know, if you're not a Democrat or something, you know, it was just horrible. And it wasn't funny. And it was too partisan and not part of this book. The interesting, to put it positively, thing about writing comedy now is Trump, in addition to doing so many other things, has kind of taken all the air out. So, you know, in The New Yorker, there's so many shouts about Trump. And sometimes you think it sort of trivializes everything else and makes it seem not important because you're not talking about really, you know, political life and death things. So it's, it's, it's hard to be a comedy writer in a way these days and make it seem at all relevant if you're not writing about Trump. I don't really have anything. Everybody said it first to me. I mean... Well, well, one of one of the problems, of course, is that Trump himself seems almost like a satirical figure from five or ten years ago. Yeah. So we've moved into an area where, you know, Saturday Night Live becomes real, and then what do you do with Saturday right. Night Live? Right. right. And at a certain point, it all just sounds like screaming, like, ah, yeah. ah, you know, yeah. and that's not funny. And it's repetitive. Yeah. It's hard to be nuanced or different when you're writing Trump humor. I occasionally do write topical stuff, but I don't write fast enough to write topical stuff. And I'd prefer to do something that has some, that will endure a little. I mean, the topical humor the next day is stale. 
in this case, it almost has to be stale because of the speed by which, you know, what was a big story seven days ago or what's a big story as we record this is going to be completely different than when this airs, even if this were to air this week, which it won't. But, you know, you wonder about someone like Andy Borowitz and whether he can stay topical from month to month. Well, his stuff has a short shelf life. I mean, Andy is really fast and he's really good at it. But if you read his stuff from last month, it wouldn't be terribly funny, I don't think. So your focus, both of your focuses on home life and what we do as people in a social setting, pretty much. I think we, we satire culture and family and... It's more anthropological than political. What I've noticed, one thing about it that I've noticed about your humor is that a lot of humor is almost like, it's like gossamer. It's it's got no substance, but your humor somehow also has substance. It's more solid than a lot of the humor I read, and I'm trying to think of... Examples, but I can't right now. Do you, do you get what I'm talking about? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm flattered. I always think I'm not. I mean, the first serious stuff I, well, many years ago, I had the shopping column in the New Yorker, and I was sent out to write about different topics, and they're pretty good topics, you know, shopping for American-made goods or shopping in China, and I always tried to. S- to write about shopping as a way to write about something else. You know, if you're writing about Dallas, and it was shopping in Dallas and Houston which turns out to be a great filter for the difference between Houston and Dallas and what makes them both Texas. Or I was sent, wasn't exactly a shopping piece, but a few years ago to write about plastic surgery in Korea. And that turns out to be the greatest filter through which to see Korea, because you can see that it's a collectivist society, it's a can-do society, it's youth-oriented. I think I I sort of figured it out when I got the shopping column, which is you can't just write about shopping. First of all, the internet does that much better than you do. So you have to figure out how to use this subject matter to tell a bigger story. Do you worry about being too funny? Like I know that, you know, the, the old joke with Woody Allen is he would take the jokes out. Do you ever worry about that? I don't, but now I'm starting to worry about it. <laughs> I do. I I also write fiction, and I think that having training as a comedy writer in some ways hurts me because when there's a juncture, I go down the comedy road, and I don't go down the meaningful, serious road. Writing longer comic pieces is hard because the reader tires of it. It's a little bit monotonous. Like you laugh once, you laugh twice, you laugh three times, and then you kind of had it because most novels, the reader turns the page because the reader wants to know what the plot is or the characters are so interesting. You don't turn the page again and again and again because they're funny jokes. Many of the great novels are comic novels. Yes, but they're also something else. That's they have true. great characters. I mean, I try to make my characters great because I'm not going to get you with a plot. I can but hardly follow a plot. You have two novels that have been published, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, you're working on any other novels now? or? I'm working on working on a novel. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. Hmm. Patricia Marks, can we talk a little bit about your career? I talked 
to Roz about her career when I interviewed her for her book on New York. Was humor always in your writing? I mean, did you want to be a writer? Were you trying to be funny? I mean, college, obviously, Harvard Lampoon. Yeah, I, I don't know if I was trying to be funny, but funny was always important in my family, and it was a way of not talking about issues. I mean, like any other family, there were things that were serious. My parents had a kid before I was born that died. We never talked about it, never, ever. I could write a really funny novel or memoir when certain people died. I, I started to write a memoir, and the first sentence was, this book could be a lot funnier if more people would die. So there were things you couldn't talk about, but you could be funny about anything. And if you're funny long enough, you kind of figure out, even implicitly, the formula. Growing up, I had no interest in being anything because I thought being a kid was a really great deal. Unlike Roz, who wanted to be an adult when she was a kid, I wanted to stay a kid. I thought inevitably I would wake up and I would be 30 and I would have three children and live in the suburb and have a station wagon. But I had no idea how that was going to happen and I didn't think it was in, under my control. I got to college. I was pre-everything. I was pre-architecture, pre-med, pre-law. And then four years and I just kind of eliminated everything. And I was on the Harvard Lampoon, which was Absolutely, the currency was was jokes, and it was like going to a humor school. It was it was great. At that point, did the National Lampoon exist, or was it did exist? Did you know people? Saturday like Night Live didn't. Doug Kenny was was enough older than I was that I knew of him. And one time he came and hung out and played pool at the Harvard Lampoon Castle. But I can't say I knew him. And the other guys from, you know, Henry Beard, who I know a little better. O'Donohue was another Michael one. Michael O'Donohue was at Saturday Night Live, had been brought in when I was there. And he, I knew he was a comic genius. And I witnessed that he yelled a lot. I, I just remember him yelling because he'd ordered a Danish and just screaming that it was blueberry and not strawberry. I was, came to Saturday Night Live during the Gene Domanian era. And it wasn't being very successful. So Michael O'Donoghue came in to like inject humor into the team. And he sat us all down and he said, you know, it's just not irreverent enough or something. And he gave us all spray paint cans. And he said, just kind of mess up the walls. And we were pretty timid. I mean, like, you know, and he just said, write anything you want. And maybe somebody wrote fuck, and then another person wrote fuck. And so it was like the next day, it was like you were drunk. Like So you had to live with all this crap on the walls. And, and then Dick Ebersol replaced Gene and delivered this speech about we're all family now and... And the next day, fired pretty much everybody at the family. Was that, was that the Joe Piscopo era? <laughs> yes, Joe Piscopo and Eddie Murphy, too. I loved it. It was my first job, and it was my first time living in New York. And peer group pressure is pretty operative with me, so everybody complained it was what you do. And I complained, too, but really I was thinking, no, make us work Sunday, too. This is so so much fun. How was it working with Eddie Murphy? He was like a newbie. He was just, I think he used all his money to buy candy. He was sweet and delightful. Roz and I are like looking at you and kind of going, wow, this is really cool, though I'm sure you've heard these stories before. Mm -hmm. 
but we were busy watching this and you know coming in after the era of Belushi and Aykroyd and Gilda Radner and that crowd it must have been very difficult because you had something extraordinary to try to live up to were you even thinking about that or were you kind of thinking this is my first job. Ah. Mainly, I was thinking that. I also, also didn't see the original Sarah Live because I was out of the country. I was being a, a graduate student in, at Cambridge, England. So it was, I was getting a ton of money from being a student. I was living in New York. I had a writing partner who I still adore, Doug McGrath, who's gone on to do lots of great things. And it was uh, overnight camp. It was like all you needed to do was put Diet Coke in the refrigerator and tell me I could have it 24 hours a day, and I would have been happy. But on top of that, like there were hilarious people. It's interesting writing TV, which I had never done before and have done a bit since, especially starting live because the live performances are so jazzed up. There's a great band, and there's so much excitement, and the, the audience is primed, you know, to, to clap insanely. So no matter how bad the show might be, you think it's so great. And seeing it like on the TV afterwards is, is a shock. But I, I had no critical abilities. I just thought it was all great. It was my first time writing with a writing partner, which was far different than writing with Roz because you, as I said, you 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 have the same part, and you're sitting there. I was sitting there with Doug, and we were just cracking each other up, and we thought everything was funny. And if you don't have an idea, you just look as if you're thinking, and you're really thinking, he'll come up with something. <laughs> <laughs> what about being a woman on that particular staff and also being the first woman and obviously at some point the only woman at the Lampoon? There was another woman shortly thereafter. But, you know, I was not exactly – it's not that I wasn't a feminist. I just kind of grew up with no sense of feminism. So I get to the – on the Harvard Lampoon and I just considered myself one of the boys. I don't know if they considered me that. I was about three inches high then. I weighed about, you know, six pounds. I think I was regarded more as a creature or a mascot than a woman. I remember when I got to college, I was admitted to Radcliffe. I got I was and got a degree at Harvard, and the the ratio was I think five Harvard boys to one Radcliffe girl. And there was a big movement to get it, not even like one-to-one. -one. It was some insane fraction, like we should really campaign for 2.135692 to one or something. And my great friend, Sarah Crichton, who's six two, and I'm really teeny, said to me freshman year, you know, we've got to, we've got to fight for this ratio because look at, look, everybody is staring at us. And You'd need a microscope to find me. She's six foot two. Of course, they were staring at her. She said, "We need to get this, you know, equality. It's we can't. And this is terrible. There are too many. There are too many boys, and they're looking at us, men, and they're looking at us." And I said, "I said, but that's why I came here. <laughs> <laughs> that's what a raised consciousness I had." And at the Lampoon, there was uh, three women, I think, and there was a woman producer. And there was half a woman's staff, so I didn't really feel 
it, it certainly was a more equal ratio than it on the Lampoon. That's Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Some Saturday Night Live writers wound up being on the show themselves. Were you ever on the show? No, I never considered myself uh, an actor, and and apparently nobody else did. Roz and I now are doing little videos. Is that what we're calling them? Episode webisodes. We have a, a comedy ukulele group called the Ukular Meltdown, and we're doing webisodes based on it. And we we love it. It's all improv. Yeah, it's very fun. Uh, do you do you ever worry about being about what your audience is going to think? Like if you're doing stand up, obviously there's an audience there, but if you're doing you know a webisode, there's no audience. We don't have an audience, so it's not really a big worry. It's very much a mockumentary what what we're doing. A little spinal tap, spinal sort of. tap, yeah. So we don't really have to worry. The pe- if you heard us play our ukuleles and we're happy to play them for you, you will see that. One doesn't have to worry about being taken seriously. Can we do a ukulele song yeah. that's in the public domain so we, we can leave it that's online? That's our specialty. That's is public yeah. domain. We rewrite public domain songs. This one is one we wrote about mothers. I'm going to stand up. Okay. Maybe I'm not. Do you think I should too? I don't know. I just I can see it. Sound we can write it. Okay. We can do it again. If, okay. Okay. Right. okay. On your mark, get set, go. As I do your laundry, though you're 22, remember that I'll always be the boss of you. Did I mention starting now you're grounded, cause all your pot I found it, P.S. I love you. Must I say it yet again to you, dear? Until the day I die, dear, put down your damn phone. Phone, phone, phone. Elbows off the table, mouth shut when you chew. Remember that one day soon. You'll have kids like you. Never leave the house in that whatever. Eat all your peas forever. P.S. I love you. You, you, you. Uh, You have another one. Yes. Yes, this one's a really, the best thing about this song is that it's very short. Okay. On your mark, get set, go. Park, park, park your car, kind of near the curb. Ay-ay-ay-ay-ay-ay-ay, you just bumped into Herb. How did you discover ukuleles? Two summers ago, I was invited to a wedding that was coincident in time and place with a solar eclipse. And all of the guests were sent an email inviting us to bring a musical instrument, if we had one, so that we could play Here Comes the Sun after the eclipse. I most emphatically did not have a musical instrument. I was forced to take piano. I showed them that I couldn't play. I couldn't get a sound out of the flute. But I thought, how hard really could ukulele be? So I went on Amazon and I got the cutest ukulele in the entire world for $49. And sure enough, 
If you have two hands and the internet, you can learn how to play the ukulele in about five minutes. And I showed Roz my ukulele and... And I just, you know, like in the cartoons when an animal like falls in love with another animal and their eyeballs become hearts and kind of like they like bloof out of their head, that sort of would happen when I saw a picture of this ukulele. I just thought it was the cutest thing I'd ever seen. It was turquoise. It was little. It had a little bridge. And I had learned to play the guitar a while ago, and I just thought, I, I think I'll give this a shot. And uh, for 49 bucks, I thought, well, it's so cute. It could just be this cute thing in the house, or maybe I would give it to somebody. And sure enough, it's uh, Patty's right. You know, if you have two hands and a little bit of time, you'll and you can learn three chords, C, F, and G, you can play almost anything. Uh, this is a guy in Hawaii, and I don't remember his last that name. That big Jake, guy is Jake, oh. little guy. Jake. Oh, a little guy. Okay. And it, it, oh, he, he can. Yeah, he sounds like Jimi Hendrix. He's, he's, he's amazing. amazing. Yes. yes, he does stuff with the ukulele that you had no idea was possible. Yeah. So it is possible to do a lot with that little instrument. Yes. Well, we possible for others. <laughs> <laughs> um, the New Yorker, you're a staff writer and you're a staff cartoonist, I guess, but they don't pay you when you're not submitting, right? Oh, that's right. That means you have to have a lot of other jobs. That's why we sell drugs. Yes. <laughs> and clean houses. <laughs> Sometimes at this, the same and this, time. As you, as you probably gather from listening to us play the ukulele, this is big time money. Oh, I'm sure. Well, uh, making music on, on the internet yeah. is big yes. time money. We all know that. Um, you said, uh, Patricia, that you have worked on screenplays. How does that work? I mean, there's no screenplay out there that says, by Patricia Marks, or is there? My then-writing partner, Sarah Paley, and I, not Sarah Palin, Sarah Paley, and I wrote a lot of scripts in the days when they would give money to develop scripts. So there are many, many unproduced screenplays, but we, we got kind of far along. They were almost produced. The first one we wrote was a children's movie called Life Without Emily, and it was for children. It was a children's movie, and it was bought by Columbia, and it was about a little boy who is fed up with his kid sister. He's seven, and she's around three, and he UPSs her away, and then he and the babysitter have to get her before the parents come back, and Columbia said, their notes were, I think that you should get rid of the sister as a character and make it a romance between the seven-year-old and the babysitter. <laughs> Those are some of the reasons there are no produced movies of mine out there. But we did make a, a living for a while selling unproduced movies. And did you become a script doctor at that point? No, no one asked me to. I would have liked that, but no one asked Yeah, there's big money in yeah, that. You don't yeah. get any I was credit. more going on the little money route. <laughs> <laughs> How did you wind up at The New Yorker? Greatest writer in the in the in the world, Ian Fraser, was on the Lampoon with me, and I sort of considered him a little bit of a mentor. And I think he introduced me to somebody, or somehow I wrote a talk of the town, and that's how I started. It was called Disco Towing, and it was really fun. But I'm a little bit bit embarrassed about it now. I would sit in the cars of policemen who were giving tickets and towing cars to people who had parked their car because they were going to discos. And why I'm a little embarrassed is 
I started rooting for the police to tow cars because it was so much fun. And then you began submitting. And then I began writing shouts. And then I got a job writing the shopping column, became a staff writer, and then now I get other assignments that are non-shopping related, which is good because that shopping column was costing me a lot of money. I'd get assignments like shopping for him, and somehow I'd manage to find things I would want to buy. At what point did they start assigning you rather than you coming up? The with shopping writing? column. And that was there. So yeah, now, I now mean, they... I, I still submit ideas for talk of the towns and for humor pieces, but longer pieces, I get assignments. My mother did something. My mom was amazing. Everybody loved her, and she was a professor, and I am who I am, for better mm -hmm. or worse, because of my mom. She did something where if she didn't like something, she would say things like, they don't wear their hair long, or <laughs> the other one I'm, is that I've been doing these interviews with writers for a long time, and I'd recommend books to her, and then she'd go, they didn't like them. And I'd go, who's they? They always turned out to be the New York Times. I, that <laughs> happened to me. My, I would talk about movies with my mother, and she and she'd say, we really liked the movie, and I would be very snobby. I said, well, it really wasn't very good. And she said, well, they liked it. And and I said, well, who? And she said, the New York Times. And I, as if I read, like, semiotics daily, I'd say, well, the New York Times. <laughs> but my mother and her friends, well, they're kind of old now, but they live in, my mother lives in Philadelphia. And she's 92? 92. And they... She, they, mentioned she and her friends, religiously pay attention to how many stars the Philadelphia Inquirer gives a movie. So they'll go to a movie and then afterward they go, I don't understand this. It got five stars. As if God gave it five stars. Uh, and then like, well, we're going to this movie. It got, it got five stars or, or it only got one star, but we liked it. The, the other thing my mother did, and maybe your mothers did this too, is that my mom would have this one special person who would be the expert. So, for instance, so, so for instance, my mother had this friend named Dolores, and Dolores was the computer expert. Dolores sold my mom and my stepdad an old computer. <laughs> on the grounds that start small, and she, they overpaid for it. My sister, meanwhile, for 30 years was an IT director uh -huh. and could have told her, yeah. but that didn't matter. In the same way that if I recommended a book that I'd read, my mother would say, you know, would just go right past her, and then she'd see the article in the Times Book Review, and she'd say, mm -hmm. I heard so-and-so was a good book. They said so, and I go, I told you that six months ago, mm -hmm. you know. It's a generation that believed in experts and authorities. My mother still has a friend, Mike, and Mike sells antiques, and Mike is the last word in antiques and furniture and style, and Mike is in our book. He said you cannot get a Dalmatian unless the spots are symmetrical, and I... I sometimes I hesitate to tell you this because it we've told it when on our book tour and people groan and guess but Mike did return a Dalmatian because the spots weren't just right. That's that's very, commitment. That's commitment. To style. Now, Roz, you were saying when I mentioned that my mom had the designated experts, you were going. <gasps> your parents were the. Were, yes, your mother was my mother the did not believe in uh, designated ex experts because she was the expert and she was the authority on everything. 
so she was actually skeptical of anybody who claimed to be an authority on anything. Now, Roz, when you got a job with The New Yorker and your mother would see your cartoons, what would her comment be? Uh, well, she, well, she was very proud, you know, um, because my parents both subscribed to The New Yorker and uh, right. friends of theirs subscribed. But she did think that I was making fun. I, she, she did once say to me, maybe more than once, I know what you're doing. I see what you're doing. You're making fun of me and daddy. And, uh, you know, I would totally lie and deny it, uh, you know, say stuff like, well, you know, this is not about you and dad. This is, you know, a general sort of, you know, comment about parents and about mothers and about fathers. And, you know, they both had some, you know, both things had some truth in them, really. And and for you, Patricia, were your parents proud of your... Extremely proud. In fact, it was... I once realized that when I came home, none of my parents' friends asked me what I was doing because they'd already pretty much gotten the bulletin. I, I felt sorry for my parents' friends who had to endure all those stories about what I was doing. Yes, they were extremely proud and could be, especially my mother, could be very critical at times. My mother called it constructive analysis, but it was criticism. So she'd call me and she said, guess what? I said, what? She goes, I read your piece. Pause. And I didn't like it. And then she would add, but if enough people like it, I'll change my mind. Because she, unlike Roz's mother, did not consider herself an authority on everything. It was just kind of, she did a lot of focus groups. And so one time I, I asked her about something. She said, well, you, I was doing a reading. She said, you should read that Time Magazine piece. I said, but you hate it. She goes, oh, yeah, but like a lot of people like it. So I was wrong. I remember my mom listening to an interview I did with Amy Tan, and afterwards she said, that was very good, except why did you insult her? The first book I ever wrote was a humor book called How to Regain Your Virginity, and I was on a panel. It was the first time I was on TV promoting a book, and I was asked a pretty simple question, which was, what is the title of your book? And I was so nervous, I couldn't remember what it was. And the people on the panel were trying to give me hints, and I still didn't get it. <laughs> and afterward, my mother's comment was, if you're on TV, you should tweeze your eyebrows. That's funny. <laughs> Patricia Marks and Roz Chast, we've pretty much run out of time. Patricia, what do you have coming up in The New Yorker? Anything? I just have some little talk of the towns about plays, and I'm working on some shouts. And um, your novel is still sitting there with an idea. Yeah, that novel that somebody needs to write. I'm going to put it out on the kitchen table and somebody will write it. How many screenplays were there that got, didn't get produced? There were about seven or eight. Some of them were pretty good. But, I mean, it, it is such a... Then, I mean, now, too, there's so many things that have to fall in line. You know, we had stars lined up, but then they got jobs. Uh, so it was fun. I liked writing screenplays because unlike print, very few words t take up a page. <laughs> there's a lot of space. <laughs> and uh, even few words in um, in cartoons. Do you have some coming up in the New Yorker, Roz Chast? Um, I do hope so. Um, they've bought some. <laughs> but you never know when they come no, up. No, I never know. I never know. And we are working on another book That's right. together. What are you working on? Um, another collaboration, another humor book, and it is relationship advice from us, which is 
kind of ridiculous because both of us are, we're not really relationship experts, but the title of the book is You Can Only Yell at Me for One Thing at a Time. And uh, so, yeah, so that's what I'm working on. I'm illustrating. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>